Hey everyone and welcome to the CVM Ireland podcast. Here at CVM we are a search and rescue agency seeking to see men's lives transformed through the power of the gospel of Jesus. We help churches all over Ireland and beyond try to achieve this and help us guys as we journey every day in our lives following Jesus. We want to let you enjoy our recordings from our 2019 DNA Men's Conference, which took place in Carmoney. Uh, it happens every year as we gather hundreds of men from all over the island of Ireland and beyond, as we worship, as we lift up the name of Jesus, and as we encounter him and get the grips with the challenges he lays out to us as men. So sit back, relax, and be blessed. Andy, come on up, bro. Um, about five and a half years ago, I got a phone call from this man. This guy used to head up what was the old M conference as it was before then. Do you want that and this? Yes, please. Awesome. Please. And he was like, Spud, we're not going to do this anymore. We're shutting everything down. I think it'd be cool if you'd done something instead. And I was kind of like, with about three months to go to the date, because normally we try to aim for the first Saturday in November. It's kind of like, I think you should give it a go. And I'm kind of like, no, no, no. <laughs> All right, we'll try it. And uh, this guy really was the, the birth of it. And uh, I want to honor him today. Andy, he heads up. Lagan Valley Vineyard. He planted it with his family and a few other good friends. He heads up church planting in the vineyard movement here in Ireland, and he's just an absolute legend. So can we just, uh, if you're up for it, just stretch out your hand. We're going to pray for him that we would receive from him. He's been a bit sick the last 24 hours, so Lord, we just thank you for Andy. We thank you for the word that you have birthed in him, Lord. May the fire of heaven come down. May you pour your water, breathe your ruach, breath on it, Lord, that it would fan into a flame that touches every single one of our hearts, our minds, our souls. Lord, we honor him today. We thank you for him, and we just bless him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, bro. Thank you. Well, good morning. We've one minute till the afternoon. Um, yeah, it's a men's conference, so I can probably give a wee bit more detail than I would. Um, you didn't want to see me this time yesterday, that is for sure. Um, so thank God I'm feeling so much better. Um, turns out, Dave, when you get a pop star mic, you sound so much better too. Did you request that? That's, yeah, that's right. Borrowed that from my wife, that's good. Um, man, it is good to be here. Um, like Spud said, I'm married to Dana. Uh, we have three kids. Our daughter, Nora, will be seven. And uh, we have twin terrorists who will be, uh, they'll be seven next summer. They're currently uh, six one of the things that I think is so important for us as men of faith, men exploring faith, men interested in the things of God, or men who've maybe been dragged along today to hear about some of the things of God, is how we answer the question, what do you see? Like when we look around our families and our communities, when we look across this province and this island, when we look across the world, uh, this question of what do you see is, is so important because it's not difficult in the current age that we live in to see difficulty, challenge, and chaos, to see problems and struggles, to see strife and all that sort of stuff. And yet Jesus says something really provocative in John, 15, John 5 verse 19, I think it is. Um, he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus was completely consumed with asking and living through the question, God, what do you see? 
And I find that deeply challenging because usually if, if I get in a prayer room, if I get out on my own, if I get deep into conversation with God and, and I really try to open up my heart, my mind, my imagination to the question, God, what do you see? Often I'm confronted with things that aren't quite the same as what I see. I want to share just a couple of stories to start of some things that have been uh, going on around our community um, of the last little while. Right now on Bow Street in Lisburn, there's around 10 brave souls um, sharing the gospel, praying for healing for mostly total strangers, whoever will uh, rock up. About three weeks ago, they started about 11 o'clock on a Saturday. And uh, they set up their chairs and did the things that they did. And as soon as they arrived, this gentleman came over and said, you're finally here. And they said, what do you mean? He said, I've been waiting for an hour. This guy had driven 25 minutes because he heard that there were some people that showed up on the streets of Lisburn on a Saturday morning to pray for people. And so he drove there and just sat opposite where they normally are and waited and waited and waited. About two months ago, um, my friend John led a, a man to Jesus on the streets of Lisburn. And um, the guy said to John, uh, after he'd led him to Christ, he said, look, my dad's ill in hospital. Do you think you and maybe a couple of the guys would be up for praying for him? And John said, yeah, let's go. And so they just jumped in the car and they drove to the Royal and as they were walking in, bear in mind these guys just met a couple of hours ago. As they were walking in, the guy who'd just given his life to Christ said, um, by the way, my dad hates God and the church and everything to do with all this sort of stuff. So it'd be really helpful if you don't mention Jesus. <laughs> just, just pray for him. And my friend John said, that's not really going to work. Um, so how about this? Introduce us to your dad and go and get a coffee. And so they go into the hospital room and the son introduces his new friends to his dad and uh, he goes off and gets coffee. And while the son is off getting coffee, John and a couple of my other friends lead the dad to Jesus there in the hospital thing. And uh, the son arrives back having had his coffee and the dad says, uh, have some news for you, son. And uh, he says, what's that, dad? And he says, I've just given my life to Jesus. And the son says, so have I. Isn't that amazing? Three weeks ago, uh, standing in church, I'd finished preaching, and um, some of you, this might be a little bit weird, it's kind of normal for, for us, but I said, I think there's somebody here, and uh, you have a pain in the right-hand side of your stomach, and I have a feeling that God might want to uh, heal you today, and so if that's you, we don't have a load of time for you to respond, just put your hand on your stomach, I prayed, and that was the end. Next Sunday morning, uh, one of my uh, friends, Pauline, grabs me in the foyer, and she says, Andy, I have been struggling with a stomach problem right-hand side for four years. It's due to cancer treatment. My doctor said there's absolutely nothing we can do. It's not life-threatening. It's just something that I've got to live with. Pain, discomfort, and loads of other symptoms. And she said, last Sunday morning, I put my hand on my stomach. Didn't think anything has happened. But for the first time in four years, I've had seven days with absolutely no symptoms. Two years ago, uh, this coming January, one of the sweetest souls in our church, our friend Robert, was brutally murdered in his own home. And um, the community out in Crumlin decided that they were going to host a vigil and phone me to see if I would come out and help lead it in the community. And so it was myself and the Catholic priest and the local Anglican minister were leading this vigil. And as I arrived, uh, one of the gentlemen that had organized this vigil was a GP from a Catholic background, and someone introduced him to me as, uh, or introduced me to him as the, the vineyard pastor. 
and um, it was kind of, it missed me in the moment, but as I reflected on it weeks after, I thought, this was incredible. And someone said, this is Andy, he's the vineyard pastor. The GP said, I've heard about you, you're the miracle people. See, it's dead easy if you read the press um, or you just kind of walk around with your eyes open to see something other than what God sees. It's easy to think that people are closed to the gospel and the world is hardened to things of the spirit. And the reality is certainly around where we are, the reputation of the church is rising as the people you go to when you need a miracle. That there are people in the world today with solutions beyond what we can conjure with our own intelligence or our bank accounts. There's something going on and I want to suggest to you, regardless of where your faith levels are this morning, that what I see across this land at the moment is a rising tide in the spirit of people that are increasingly open to the things of God and indeed desperate for someone to help them understand how to navigate the chaos of this thing we often call life. I wanna speak this morning, or Spuds asked me to speak this morning, this idea of standing for the kingdom. A few years ago, we had a, a girl showed up in church from America. Um, so that sounds like she just arrived. She had emailed and we had FaceTimed a couple of times and she'd been listening to the podcast. I don't know how she connected with us, but she was like, do you think I could come for a while? And we were like, sure, how long do I come for? And I said, well, maybe like six months. And we, well, that might be a bit of a visa challenge, but sure, come for as long as you want. And uh, we were having dinner one night uh, at home with my family. And she said, Andy, can I ask you a really silly question? And I said, well, let's answer the question and I'll decide if it's silly. And um, she said, I've been around church my entire life. Like I've, my parents took me to Sunday school. I've never, I think she was 31 at this stage. She said, I've never had a season in my life where I haven't been in church. And I've been here for, for two months. And you guys keep talking about this thing that I've never heard talked about in church ever. It's called the kingdom. She seems to talk about it all the time. And she said, my, my silly question is, what is it? Like what, what, I've been trying to follow Jesus my entire life. Never heard anyone ever talk about the kingdom. And you guys seem to talk about it a lot. And I don't have a clue what it is. <laughs> I said, that's not a silly question at all. Some would say it's one of the most important questions that we would wrestle with. Certainly seemed to be a pretty important idea to this man called Jesus. Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, declares, repent, the kingdom of heaven is arriving. That word heaven there is similarly translated in some of the other gospels as God. The kingdom of God is at hand or is near or is within touching distance. And Jesus' ministry is wrapped up in this idea of him proclaiming and demonstrating the nearness of the kingdom of God. But not just um, for Jesus, we don't, we're run out of time, so I'll just give you the references. You can fact check me later if you want. Acts 1, um, the very beginning, I think it's verse 8, you see Luke talking about what Jesus is doing right there, and it says that he's teaching them about the kingdom. And at the very end of Acts 28, I think it's verse 31, you see Paul in 
house arrest, proclaiming Jesus and teaching about the kingdom. It's no accident that Luke in the book of Acts opens the book and ends the book with this idea of the kingdom. This kingdom message wasn't just for the four gospels. It's entirely wrapped up in the idea of how we understand New Testament theology and the mission of the church that we would embody the mission and ministry of Jesus of both proclaiming and demonstrating the tangible, touching distance reality of the kingdom of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. You ever notice that? How it's really difficult to convince people to follow Jesus. At least for their lives anyway. But when people encounter Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. The gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God is absolutely central to the message and ministry of Jesus. And there are loads of technical definitions. Theologians have written reams on this idea. Um, Our working definition at Lagan Valley Vineyard, anyway, is that the kingdom of God is the place where what God wants happens. It's kind of as simple and as utterly challenging as that, that the kingdom of God is the place where what God wants happens. It's the order of God invading the chaos of the world. God's good order coming alive around the chaos of our world. And so when Jesus proclaims, repent for the kingdom of God has come near, he then goes on to both explain and demonstrate it. This is why he drives out demons, he heals the sick, he confronts systems of injustice and prejudice, and teaches all those who will listen about the values of God. This is what he's doing, saying these are the things God cares about. This is what God's will on earth actually looks like. I want to spend the rest of our time together looking at two passages as we answer the question, so what? It's a great question in church. And if you want to ask your minister, pastor, church leaders a good question, so what's a great place to start? We spend so much time exposing all sorts of stuff. And listen to me, I am absolutely passionate about the scriptures, but if we don't get to a so what, we've completely missed the point, right? Listen to the words of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray together for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. 
And we humbly pray, come Holy Spirit. Come and breathe life upon it and change our lives for the sake of our families, our communities, and this whole place we call home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The text that we've just read, such an important part of understanding everything that has come before it. If the kingdom of God is the place where what God wants happens, then this is possibly the most extensive reading or comprehensive description of the desires of God. I saw a holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. What does God want? Desperate to simply be with us and among us. The story of God right from Genesis through to this moment is one of God moving towards us. I love it when people say things like, you know, I found Jesus or I found God. And in humility and gentleness, I always want to kind of go, no, you didn't. (laughs) He found you. And he's been looking for you your entire life. John here describes the longing of God in such a beautiful and poetic way. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Isn't it funny how for so often we wrap up the gospel as like the goal is that we would go and dwell with God? It's not what's in here. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God wipes away every tear, a time when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. God dwelling among people, no death, no sadness, no sickness, no illness, no pain. What a beautiful picture. Barack Obama came to Ireland in 2011. Do you remember the Corrigan Brothers song? No one as Irish as Barack Obama. Only Irish people can write that kind of music. But he made several speeches all over Ireland when he was here. And if you remember what life was like here in 2011, it was pretty challenging. It was not the easiest time uh, for our economy and all that sort of stuff. And Barack Obama famously heralded, I think it was a speech in Cork, where he said, Ireland, your best days are ahead of you. Of course, everyone cheered. It wasn't until a week later, the comedian Tommy Tiernan said, that's class, what do we do in the meantime? (laughs) Revelation 21 is a beautiful articulation of our one day. It's a beautiful, poetic picture of where we will all get to one day where no matter what you're walking with or carrying, no matter what your family's struggling with, no matter what's going on in your life, one day there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. But what do we do in the meantime? What do we do 
in the meantime, Revelation 21 fuels the longing of the oppressed and the downtrodden, from the domestic violence victim to the struggling addict to the parents walking through illness to the young widow dealing with bereavement. We can't help but long for a day when all of things end. But what do we do in the meantime? Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Just me or do any of the rest of you find the last part of that verse a bit weird? It it seems like it shouldn't be there. The first part is beautiful and poetic. A new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth passing away. This beautiful act of new creation, of recreation. All this crazy cosmic stuff going on that we don't really understand. But at least it sounds exciting. And then John just slips this little idea in at the end. And by the way, there won't be any sea anymore. Isn't that odd? I like the sea. How about you? Like some of my more profound moments with Jesus have been walking on beaches There's a really famous gospel presentation that's all about sand and footprints and, you know, it seems like the sea and the sand and the waves and the wind and space and all of that stuff, the beauty of sunrises and sunsets and horizons and, well, I guess it's just not going to make it into new creation. My first thought when I was reflecting on this is perhaps John was an aquaphobe, Right? I mean, you wouldn't be that surprised if Revelation is written by Paul. He gets shipwrecked a load of times. And so he's just a little bit of himself bleeding over into his Revelation that no matter what else you say to me, I am going to say to you that in the new age to come, there'll be no more sea, no more shipwrecks. We are pretty sure that John wrote this revelation whilst exiled on an island. Perhaps it was the monotony of the sea that actually he was getting at, bored of the constant in and out of waves. Or perhaps there is something much more significant going on. When we understand what the sea represents to the Hebrew mind, this whole verse makes so much more sense. The sea was the place within which monsters emerged from. The sea represents chaos, darkness, something that is dangerous and to be feared. It's unpredictable. If you go to Matthew 14, a passage that we're all really familiar with, In the context of Revelation 21, perhaps it takes on new life for us. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, between the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him saying, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you in the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat. He walked in the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. 
And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When we understand what the sea represents, this story takes on a whole new level of meaning for us. The sea representing the realm of Satan, sin and death, the chaos and the darkness that invades all of our lives. And Jesus comes to them walking on top of it. In their folk memory, the sea was the place much more akin to graveyards for us. Hence, they think it's a ghost. We've always thought of this story as Jesus walking on water, but what if the much more profound thing is actually that he's standing on the sea? The miracles, the miracle for the disciples in the boat isn't that Jesus is defying gravity. It's so important that you understand that. That's what we read. But we're about 1,640 odd years before Newton publishing his ideas on gravity. They aren't experiencing this miracle as one of physics. They're experiencing this as Jesus embodying the kingdom of God, that he would stand on the chaos that their lives are terrified of. That he would come to them literally walking on the darkness. God taking authority over chaos and literally putting it under Jesus' feet. These are seasoned fishermen, skilled sailors, battling against the wind in the middle of the storm in the darkest hour of the night. Some translations say this happens just before dawn. Most likely, they've been working hard, exhausted, drenched, waiting at any moment for a rogue wave to flip the boat and drown them all. If you've ever been out in a small boat in a storm at nighttime, you'll have some idea of what's going on in their heads and their hearts, wet through, exhausted. And in the distance, you notice something and think it's just because you're shattered. You ever have a moment like that? You see something, but you're slightly scared to articulate it in case you sound like an idiot. I think I just saw somebody out there. And then the waves rise and fall, the winds howling, all that, and you're like, no, <laughs> I definitely saw that. There is somebody out there. And you begin to share with a friend, I think I see someone walking on the water. The text says, that they are terrified. Remember to them what the sea represents. 
it's hard for us to fully get into where they were at. This is their moment. This is, they're sure, right? The winds aren't going to get us, but some monster, some demon is now coming on top of the water, and it's going to ruin our lives and probably kill us all. This is an appropriate question to ask a room full of men. When was the last time publicly you cried out in fear? Like with your mates. We're pretty good at avoiding that, right? We, we know how to keep that under control so we don't look like fill in the blank. These grown men, utterly terrified, trembling, literally screaming, and then the thing that they're most afraid of speaks back to them and says these words, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. I want to do an experiment for a minute, so I'm not going to ask you to share this so that you can get properly vulnerable with yourself and Jesus for a moment, okay? So I want you to bring to your mind the thing in your life that you're most afraid of. Maybe it's helpful for you to close your eyes. Just bring to the front of your mind the thing that you are most afraid of. Family member getting ill, losing your job, somebody finding out something that's in your past, or I don't know what it is, but you bring that to your mind. Hopefully, you've got it. Now, I want you to imagine Jesus standing in the middle of that thing, looking right back at you, saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What does it take for us as men to stand for the kingdom? The first thing it takes is for us to allow Jesus to come and stand in the chaos in our lives and say, don't be afraid. For Jesus to come and stand in the middle of the chaos and say, you don't need to be afraid of this thing. The first way that the enemy of God keeps us from being able to deal with our stuff is by making us so afraid of it that we'll never move towards it. Just avoid it, ignore it, don't talk to anyone about it. Just pretend it's not there, look the other way. And all the while, if you have eyes to see, you'll notice Jesus standing in the middle of it saying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. This thing doesn't have to define you. Don't be afraid. If that's not enough for us, verse 28 is this mad moment. Like, just imagine the conversation in the boat. Does, that sounds like Jesus. Couldn't be Jesus. Jesus would never be out there in that. That's not the place where Jesus lives. Jesus lives on tranquil mountainsides and peaceful places. He doesn't live in chaos. Well, no, you're right. He doesn't live in chaos, but gosh, does he stand on it? 
And they come around to this idea that Jesus is actually standing on top of the thing that they're most afraid of. And then perhaps up until the book of Acts, Peter's finest moment, he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you in the water. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. Peter was a good disciple who understood how the rabbinic tradition worked. Which when a rabbi calls a disciple, he's not saying, I think you're smart enough to understand everything that I know. When a rabbi called a disciple, what he was saying was, I see in you the potential to live my life. Everything that's available to the rabbi is available to the disciple, basic discipleship. And so Peter understands, if my rabbi can stand on the sea, so can I. And so he says, if it's you, tell me to come. It's amazing. Ridiculous courage and faith and all those kind of things. And I wish some of the gospel writers give us this detail. I wish we got the spirit or the tone with which Jesus said, come, come. We just get the word come. Can you imagine that moment? In a boat, this is not a flat sea. This is rising and falling. This is waves. It's in the middle of the night. It's dark. There's no torches. There's a voice in the darkness saying, come. And Peter clambers over the side of the boat and begins to walk on the water. Now, of course, he freaks out. He starts to sink. Jesus pulls him out. And I think, and it's only my opinion, has a bit of a play with him where he chastises him for his faith. You have little faith. (laughs) I'm quite confident Jesus is laughing in that moment, thinking, I can't believe he got out of that boat. (laughs) It's not in the text. I'm totally reading into that. It just sounds like Jesus to me. You know? It's like, you have little faith. He just walked on water. (laughs) I think his faith was doing all right. Bring back to your mind that thing that you're most afraid of. Bring back to your heart the voice of Jesus inviting you to take courage. And then if you've got it in you, hear him invite you to join him standing on it. See, this is where the rubber meets the road for lots of us. Because I think most of us have the theological capacity to believe that the things that scare us most or intimidate us most or torture us most or whatever us most, Jesus is able to stand on those things. Most of us would say, yeah, I think I've got somewhere in my head and my heart, I could believe that Jesus can stand on the things that scare me most. But where we trip over ourselves is, I don't know if I ever could. Sure, sure Jesus could. Jesus can be victorious over that addiction, over that anger issue. Jesus could, of course, sort my family out. Jesus, of course, could do something about that issue that's in our community that's ravaging it. And, and we pray and we pray and we pray. 
And we imagine and we imagine and we imagine and sometimes we see him come and stand on the sea. But the real work starts whenever we open our hearts to hear him say to us, come stand here with me. Come stand here with me. Come stand on this thing. A couple of years ago, Dana and I had uh, 24 hours in, in Paris. And uh, this is an a illustration to do with um, art. It's a dodgy one to do at a men's conference. I probably should be telling you something about sport or sometime I killed something. But anyway, a friend of ours said, um, she's French, and we were like, where should we go in Paris? And she said, you need to go to the Rodin Museum. Go to the Rodin Museum. It's the best museum in Paris and so, so we went and we paid a little bit of extra money to get like the headphones of him explaining his art and Rodin was the uh, sculpture some of you are thinking I have no idea where this is going you'll know most of you will know the thinking man you know the big guy that's like this that was a Rodin sculpture anyway he did a, a sculpture of the gates of hell this massive bronze sculpture in the garden it's about four and a half meters high by about three meters wide it's absolutely enormous and there's tourists everywhere and we've got our headphones on and I'm walking towards the gates of hell and I'm standing in front of them and I felt like the Lord whispered to me, plant your feet. So I'm standing there looking at the gates of hell and I'm waiting for this like really profound spiritual moment. Nothing's happening. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, tourists buzzing around everywhere. I'm like, stay in the zone, Andy. Jesus is about to show you something incredible. And nothing happens. And Dana's like, can we go? And I said, just hold on, hold on, be quiet. And uh, she's getting properly frustrated. As she was interrupting my moment with Jesus. And eventually she goes, can we just go? And I was like, oh, okay. So off we go. Nothing happened. And we're having a glass of wine in this little conservative place. And she's like, what's going on with you in front of that sculpture over there? And she's like, well, like, I felt like the Lord said to me to plant my feet. And I really thought it was him. And I really thought something was going to happen. And she said, so you thought God just told you to stand in front of the gates of hell? That's how she said it. And I went, ah, I think I got it. That's the point. So often we're waiting for fireworks. We're waiting for some undeniable, earth-shattering, shaking thing when the point is that we are able to plant our feet and stand. That whatever's facing you and your life, whatever's facing your family, whatever's facing the place that you work, the business that you're in, the school that you're on staff in, whatever's facing you there, the point isn't that we run around like crazed lunatics thinking, God's over here, God's over there, God's wherever. The point is that we are able to go, everything's gonna be okay. Everything is going to be okay. Men, we look forward to the day when every tear will be wiped away. We look forward, long for the day when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. We look forward to the day when our communion with the risen Lord Jesus will com be completely unbroken. But until that day, we live and work with the end in mind. We respond 
to the invitation of Jesus to come and be with him standing on the seas of our lives, to plant our feet on top of chaos. Standing for the kingdom requires us to get out of the safety of our boats and walk on it. To learn with Jesus by the Holy Spirit to walk on chaos. It doesn't take a genius to see that our world is in a fair degree of chaos right now. And what we as followers of Jesus must not do is hunker down in our respective boats terrified. But we need to learn to see Jesus and join him where he's standing. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've been blessed by today's teaching. For more information on our ministry and everything that we do or to get in contact, head over to our website, cvm.ie. Hope to see you soon.